From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Most days, even if you had a really fast plane, it would be impossible to visit the U.S., the U.K., Spain, France, Finland, China, and Brazil all in one day. Lucky for us, though, it's easy to do if you're setting out on a musical journey. Our pilot today, already strapped into the cockpit, or in this case, sitting at the Steinway, is Dr. Jared Pierce, an accomplished pianist and one of the newest members of the piano faculty at Brigham Young University. And he'll start us out where every journey begins, at home. In our case, that's right here in the good old U.S. of A., represented by a piece from George Gershwin, the first of his blues-influenced three preludes for piano. Jared Pierce in studio live for Highway 89 with prelude number one of three preludes for piano by George Gershwin. That's exciting. It is an exciting piece. You yes. started off with one to really get the blood flowing there. <laughs> and it's flowing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you really had to lay down on those keys, you know, you raised right up off the piano bench there. Oh. It was like you meant it. It is so fun to play a classical work with jazz influence. Hmm. It just gets you going in so many ways. It's just a fun work. Well, this show today, we've been excited to have you. This is around the world in music, around the world in 88 keys. I don't know, something <laughs> like that. But talk about the unifying role of music around the world. Well, music is an amazing thing. You know, we often say that music is the universal language of mankind. Mm -hmm. And no matter where you go and what age, since the dawn of time, we've had music. And it is so interesting when you take an instrument like the piano, which is a Western civilization instrument, but yet seen through so many civilizations in our modern times. 
We'll see works by Gershwin, of course, that have this wonderful jazz influence. And we'll see works by Debussy. We'll see works by Albéniz. We'll see works mm -hmm. from all over the world. And yet they all have their distinctive flair, their own distinctive character, those things that make them theirs. And I find it so fun to be able to, in just 60 minutes, take a quick little trip musically around the world. I thought that was something too good to pass up. Well, we are actually taking advantage of a program you are preparing for, and we'll be doing, we're glad to be your dress rehearsal. Oh, thanks. I, I definitely need it. <laughs> Drop by any time you need an audience. Oh, sure. So there was a time when the harpsichord was king, and yeah. then they started in, introducing the piano. If you were really rich, you could have both. Hmm. And then the piano kind of won out. We've even read about harpsichords being heaped on the fire for firewood because oh, it's just a travesty yeah <laughs> i know and now it's so hard to find a harpsichord exactly so the piano is so worldwide that we even have piano music written in the orient which would have been unthinkable 100 years ago 150 years so. ago but you know as we see so many different people becoming involved in the classical piano world especially through competitions uh, as those great pianists grow older, they find some of them have a great knack for composition. Mm -hmm. And we see these classical works coming from these countries that we never thought. We're used to seeing, of course, the great Russian composers or the great German and Austrian composers and French and Spain. But to see a composer from China or from Japan or maybe even from India, these great works that are starting to emerge that we're seeing that some have been around for a while, but many of them are very new and it's very exciting to see. Well, good. We're going to hear more music. We're going to just hop across the Atlantic for our first couple of stops, a pair of pieces here. First, I know you're going to recognize this one. It's Country Gardens from Percy Granger, and that will be followed with one particular number from España by Isaac Alvaniev, his tango. Thank you. 
a pair of Western European pieces on Around the World in 88 Keys. That's Dr. Jared Pierce, newly minted on the BYU Piano Faculty. Congratulations. <laughs> it's great to have you here this close. Thank that you. means we know we can call you back someday. Yes, please do. <laughs> Interesting. Both of those pieces using the very same instrument, but evoking totally different emotions. Very much so. <laughs> so what are your reasons you wanted to highlight all of those different countries? Well, it's, it's interesting to see the different histories in the music that we, as you go through each uh, country and you go from place to place, you start to hear different kinds of elements that are common to each people. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Spanish music, you hear these wonderful appoggiaturas and grace notes, and it's very alluring and seductive and wonderful, and, and it's just this kind of tango. It's so great to play. Mm -hmm. But then you play this rousing British it's sort of English gardens. It's so fun to do. I just really enjoy it. It gives you a whole completely different feel mm. when you're sitting at the piano than this introspective, uh, you know, tango from Albinis. It's just so great. And then, of course, as we'll hear later, works of which inspire the heart and the soul to rise up, to to conquer fear, to conquer. Uh, so many things in this world of which we struggle with, you know, whether it's, you know, fear of not being good enough or wanting to achieve and inspire the greatest things that one's country can and those wonderful nationalist pieces that we see, such as the Finlandia hymn that we yes. hear soon. Do you have a favorite piece? Of this program? For, for the piano, from this program? Finlandia is one of my very uh -huh. favorites. I do love that work. It's, it's just such a rousing number. And yet this hymn in the middle that can make, I believe, any person in the world just weep as they hear it enter, as it does, of course, the Finnish people when they hear it. Well, it, it really is interesting how, how the time that the piece premiered, and uh, I, I know that the Russian censors weren't letting the, the piece be played, and so they would put it on the program, and they would name it things like, and next we'll hear happy thoughts at springtime or whatever, <laughs> but it was always Finlandia. That's right, sort of, exactly. It's sort of cool to see that these people just uh, getting away with what the censors were trying to prevent, mm -hmm. just that. And how, how a piece of music could unify a nation. And then later they take that hymn section and turn it into the national anthem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And not only that, but it becomes a hymn that is known across the world. Uh -huh. It is one of the most popular hymns that, of course, we have in our own hymnody. And you know, what a beautiful work it is. And I think it's wonderful to play this work because very few know that this is where it is originated. And they hear this work in its original setting and how much more powerful I think it is to hear it within context of the rest of the Finlandia work. So he wrote it for orchestra why did he later, this is backwards from how it usually works with composers, why did he later make a piano version? Well, you know, during the time, uh, I think especially if you go back to maybe Paris, 1830s, we find that one of the most popular mediums for a pianist is the virtuoso piano transcription, to take a work that was originally written for something else, be it organ or orchestra or what have you, and to put it into the piano and to showcase the piano. Uh, this medium more or less has kind of died out today, which is kind of a shame, but certainly in the early 1900s, it was still there and it was quite popular. And I think Sibelius thought this would be a great work for the piano. And as you'll hear, it's very pianistic in the way that it is created. It doesn't sound like an orchestral piece. It sounds like a piano piece that is very virtuosic, very, uh, lots of grandeur in it. It's just a fun piece to play. I can't think of anything else but to hear the piece played at this point. So Jared Pierce is going to be playing 
the composer's own virtuosic piano transcription of Finlandia. Thank you. 
Atlandia performed live on Highway 89 in Studio 6. Jean Sibelius, the composer, that's his own piano transcription, along with uh, re- taken from his beautiful orchestral work, Finlandia. We're talking today with Dr. Jared Pierce, who is leading us on a tour of the whole wide world here. We've just been to Finland. We have France coming up in, on the horizon. But first, a couple of questions. First, concert grand pianos. Eight foot, 11 roughly, about just sort of nine feet, weighs about 1,400 pounds. That's really Pretty a, big. a big instrument. Well, you know, one of the hardest things about being a pianist is you can't take it with you. <laughs> and so you have to, you know, just hope that when you get there, it's a good piano. And I've played some concerts to where you get there and oh that that note's oh that note sticks to oh goodness that one doesn't even play and so and so you start going through that and you have to you have to make do with what you got and thankfully we have a beautiful piano here at Highway 89 but it's we not always check the case. to be sure all the keys are there uh, oh well that's good <laughs> <laughs> it's just on our checklist so let me ask you you obviously care about where the pieces came from who wrote them when even that they are from. When your students arrive, they're all good piano players. Do they care? Do you have to teach that to them? You have to teach that. Most of the time, a student will come in and I'll say, let's, let's talk about this. Tell me, tell me about the composer. Tell me about what life was like in Vienna in 1800 mm-hmm. or 1719. And a lot of the times you'll get that deer in the headlights like, like I didn't know I was supposed to know this. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a good conversation about why it's important. You know, if we don't know why a piece was composed, or when a piece was composed, or who even composed it, really, you know, who that person was. I remember having a, uh, a wonderful lesson on the Grieg Piano Concerto with Anne Schein, and she said, was Grieg a pianist? And I, eyes, my <laughs> eyes just got really wide, and I said, yes. And, and she just said, you don't know, do you? And she said, go home and find out. And that was the end of my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's really important to know whether you are actually studying something that was written by a composer who was actually a pianist, whether someone maybe even helped them to write it, as we mm. see in many cases when yeah. a composer is writing for a medium they don't really know. And, you know, I, I had a student today who I was just talking about who I said, you know, this piece was written for Clara Schumann. And there was that deer in the headlights. Like I said, do you know who Clara Schumann is? And nope. I said, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> and so I think, I think it's a wonderful thing to know the history of a piece and where it comes from. So as you see them start to delve into this, do you see it affect, actually affect their playing? Oh, very much so. Hmm. You know, if a piece is about love and they're playing it like it's a piece about war, certainly <laughs> it changes things. Um, you know, it's, but definitely I think it helps people to understand that these works are not just notes on a page. They're stories. They are people's thoughts and dreams and hopes that are put onto a page to express not only how they feel at the moment, but who they are. And if we don't know that, we don't really know what it is we're playing. So I think it's very important for students to understand that and to encapsulate that. Well, often when you go to a concert, for for the people who are attending and being in the audience, there will be program notes to give you hints of those things that mm-hmm. I think can really add to the performance. Very much so. Yeah, performer as well as audience member, right? Now, we look back on a lot of this music and we think, oh, yes, this is how music sounds. But the different eras, every time someone came up with something a little bit new, it was sort of a huge thing in the lives of the people who were, some of them thought, subjected to this new music, mm-hmm. like our next piece. Yeah. Oh, yes. So tell me a little bit about people hearing what Debussy did. Sure. Well, you know, 
This, this piece is a great example of Debussy's earlier period, which is very impressionistic. It's, it's very beautiful, it's very tonal, but it has these wonderful extended colorful chords, uh, which we hear it, it just evokes this interesting sound that, and feeling within us that we're not used to hearing, especially if right before it you're listening to, of course, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or if you're listening to uh, Bach, to hear these wonderful chords that just sort of sit and float. You know, as if watching a balloon go up higher and higher and higher as we hear these beautiful chords. It's very different than listening to a Mozart piano concerto, which is so very regimented. You know, you have your double exposition, then the piano enters, and then you have your cadenza at the end, of course. And, you know, those kinds of rules are thrown away. And all of a sudden, we have this blank canvas, you know, much as we see in the art of the Impressionistic period. It's just, it's so very different. And the colors are very different. And I think... You know, as much as we feel in any age, when something new arises, we kind of immediately go, what is this? I'm a little bit wary. But if we learn to really look and see what's in front of us, we, we find the beauty in it. I think, I, I think that Debussy's work, Claire de Lune, is one that will stand for many more years to come. And, and we will probably see it in many more Twilight movies and things such as that. <laughs> but uh, no, we will definitely see it in many years to come. Good. We're, let's hear this. This is from Claude Debussy's Sweet Bergamasque, which was written about, well, in the, he was such an effective composer in the late 19th century, 20th century. We're, we're going to hear the third of the four pieces in his Sweet Bergamasque, Claire de Lune.
Claire de Lune from Sweet Bergamas by Claude Debussy. We're listening to performances around the world in 88 keys with Jared Pierce here at the piano. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thank you for tuning in. We love to bring you live performances. And do you feel something extra when you know that it's live and there's no retakes? You just play and what comes out comes out. Yep, definitely. <laughs> you sort of feel a little extra shake in the hands and the knee starts moving in ways you've never felt it do in years. And yeah, it's definitely a wonderful feeling, actually. It's really exhilarating it's to do. It's good for it. You know you're alive. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so... I have seen various times, uh, and YouTube will emphasize this, someone will put a piano in a public spot mm -hmm. and then wait to see what happens. And sometimes people will come by and play something wonderful. Those are the ones that usually make it. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing most of the time they're not playing something wonderful. It's kids doing chopsticks or something fun like that. Pretty much. So when you see a piano in a train station or wherever, do you, do you play it? You know, I, I, always, I have to admit, I'm usually very tempted to go and play it. You know, I recently uh, came back from a tour in France, and I was in a train station, and there's this piano that's, you know, it's got graffiti all over it. You know, it looks like it's definitely seen some better days, but it's, it's just a piece of the train station now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was always someone on it. You know, at one point there was a homeless man playing. And, and playing not too bad, I might admit. Maybe that doesn't bode well for us pianists. But um, also, you know, you would see young children just going and playing. But there was only one time that it was free. And unfortunately, it was just when I needed to leave. I thought, <laughs> Your oh, train was pulling I would in. love to just <laughs> play it. But no, I, I resisted. But every once in a while, when there's a, an open piano, whether I'm staying at a hotel and there's one sitting down in the lobby, I'll, I'll ask to play it. And I'll have to reassure them that, no, I actually do know how to play the instrument. And I'm not just trying to, you know, play with chopsticks. Do you put out a tip jar? Oh, um, I've only ever done that once. <laughs> no, not, not unless I'm playing a gig and I really need the money. But uh, no, usually I don't put out a tip jar. Well, one thing you do that people who have pursued a solo piano career usually do not is to include being a collaborative pianist. Mm. And I've heard you, I know you play as the, as the pianist for a couple of groups. I've heard you actually with uh, Barlow Bradford and his Utah Chamber Artists, mm -hmm. an, an integral part. What makes you feel like that's important for you to keep doing and to include in what you do? When I applied for the job here at BYU, Jeff Shumway told me that collaboration is, is, is music among friends. And I very much see it that way. It's different when you're all by yourself and you're playing a work. It's, it's a wonderful personal spiritual experience. But yet when you're with others, you feel this connection that just seems to permeate everybody. You breathe together. You move together. There's something really fun about that. You know, it's, it's probably just like, you know, any sport or any activity in which really people come together with one mind and one purpose. And uh, what an interesting feeling it is to come together and to play a work that might be three, four hundred years old, and yet it still rings true in the hearts of anybody who plays it still today. I find that to just be a fascinating thing. Well, I'm impressed that you managed to work that in with everything else that you do, and, and it sounded wonderful when I've heard you do it. Thank you. And I can always tell that the, uh, the choir members are quite appreciative of a job well done. Oh. They have a good collaborative pianist. Well, you can definitely see the looks when you're not. <laughs> <laughs>
So you're going to introduce us to an artist I've never heard of before from China. Yeah, it's actually one that I was not familiar with. Uh, apparently, it's a very famous uh, pianist from China during the 50s. And, you know, it's interesting. His history is a little bit similar to, say, Shostakovich or Prokofiev in that during his day, there was a lot of pushback from the government at the time to write, of course, what the government wanted. And so, you know, similar to Prokofiev, writing a lot of works, of course, that promoted the nation, promoted the government, instead of being as experimental as he might have wanted to do in those days. And the work that I'm going to do actually comes out of that period where it is a very famous work, one that was done all the time, uh, and that one that he put in the piano is exquisitely beautiful, but maybe not as experimental as some of his other works, but uh, just an exquisite work for piano. And an example of a classical instrument yet being put into this wonderful oriental feel. Pronounce his name for me. That's a good question. <laughs> it looks like Wan Jung Young. That's a good guess. <laughs> okay. Go I would go with that. Okay, we'll go with that. We're about to hear this piece that was written by this uh, a composer who really made his name during a very difficult time, the Cultural Revolution, but became a treasured, treasured composer in China. This is Liu Yang River.
music from Chinese composer Wang Zhengzhou, Liu Liang River. In fact, some of those pieces that he wrote are actually uh, considered to be uh, among the six most representative 20th century Chinese piano masterpieces. And and uh, we've now headed so far east, we're going to keep going, we're going to come back to the west, and we're going to end in Brazil. Eitor Villalobos. Yes, this is actually one of my favorite works of his. It's just... It's a it's a real <laughs> it's a fun work to play. It's pretty much called Dance of the White Indian, for many reasons. Many people have different ideas. One because it's pretty much all in the black keys or the white keys. Excuse me. Uh, it just runs very quickly. Uh, there are different stories. One there's a story about Villa Lobos being in the woods one day and seeing this white Indian who danced until he died. And then there's another one where his biographer says that he was the white Indian, Villa Lobos himself. And so there's many different stories that circulate around this piece, and it's fun to think which one might actually be true. But in any case, it's a wonderful work. Well, thank you for taking us all the way around the world. I wonder, did you start on piano? Was that your first instrument? Yes, that was my first one. When I was three years old, my mom said, do you, want to play the, do you want to play the piano? And I said, sure. And of course, at that age, I had no idea really what that meant. And she signed me up for a two-year contract with a piano teacher. I know that seems unheard of. <laughs> for a three-year-old. But, but could you reach the piano keys? <laughs> I sure could. And you know, I, the, they actually signed me up because... I was already making up songs on the piano, uh-huh. and they said, we need to somehow get this kid lessons, and I had perfect pitch, and they could kind of tell that I just had a knack for it, and you know, within just a few short years, I was playing pretty difficult pieces, at least for a four, five and six-year-old, and, and uh, it's something I always wanted to do. Very cool. It's nice when someone gets to actually take a stab at what they were born to do. Thank you. It looks like it. So let's hear this. We're going to now finish our tour around the world in 88 keys in Brazil. Eitor Villalobos, the composer, will be hearing from his Brazilian cycle, the fourth and final of those, Dance of the White Indian. Thank you. 
Eitor Villalobos, composer for Dance of the White Indian that represents Brazil. The end of today's journey that's performed live in studio just now by Dr. Jared Pierce on the BYU piano faculty. Uh, we have more countries left. Oh, yes, there's plenty more. We could take another trip another time. <laughs> in fact, we hope we do. We hope you'll come back and do that. I have to ask, I know your wife is a singer. Yes. There's a lot of music going on at the Pierce household. Very much so. Are there more than one piano? Or how do you, how do you deal with, is there a cutoff for quiet time? Or how does it work when you, you both need to practice at the same time? Well, that's a good question. You know, my wife you know, teaches voice lessons, and I teach piano lessons. And sometimes we have to manage who's going to be where. And, and uh, I actually do a lot of my practicing and I shouldn't say this. You know, when I was when I was in my master's program, Dr. Perry Fox, who was my teacher at the time, was aghast that I would ever practice on a digital piano. But I did, and, and I would I know <laughs> gasp, right? But I would actually plug in headphones and I would practice uh-huh. on that. And I still do that until about two o'clock in the morning, time to time, because I'm just too busy to practice any other time. <laughs> that lets because, everybody else sleep. Exactly right. Uh, <laughs> Jared Pierce, thank you so much for coming and playing for us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been great to be here. Beautifully done. Jared Pierce, assistant professor in the BYU School of Music. If you're listening at home, just caught part of the show, or you'd like to hear it again, and who wouldn't? That's easy enough to do. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org slash highway89. And follow us on Twitter at BYUH89 for live show updates and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. Our recording engineer is Mark Waite, and the show's producer is Jackie Tateishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.